Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Clone Star Podcast. This episode is brought to you by SciFire.com, your one-stop galactic bookshop. I'm your host, Shore Hurley, and this week I'm joined by our co-host, Jody Pickens. Jody, how are you? Good, thank you. And this week we are joined by author David Mack, whose new book, Star Trek Picard Firewall, is currently out now. David, welcome to the show. Glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Now, an advance warning, this book does contain spoilers, so unless you've read the, the book, book in the spoilers? last... <laughs> I know, yeah. In the interview <laughs> okay. Oh my God. Well, John, we're leaving that in. Um, so <laughs> I can't get away with it. Look, I've made a mistake that I always make one, so we're going to leave that in. This episode contains <laughs> spoilers from the book. <laughs> I know, yeah. The one part I thought I'd get right, I got wrong. Dave, this episode will contain spoilers for the book rather than the book containing spoilers for this episode. So there we go. Now, David, do you want to tell us a bit about the story of Picard Firewall? It is structured like a classic coming-of-age tale, uh, which some literary readers might know as a Bildungsroman, uh, in that it's a story about Seven of Nine, shortly after the Voyager ship has come home from the Delta Quadrant. And what we know from canon, from Star Trek Picard, is that after Voyager came home, the ship was sort of mothballed into a museum, and the crew scattered. Harry Kim went off to some new assignment. Tom and Bellana went off to have their child and start a family. Chakotay, according to Star Trek Prodigy, uh, was placed in command of the USS Protostar and the Protostar Project. Janeway got promoted into the Admiralty. Tubak went into Starfleet Command Security Division in some sort of administrative capacity. So basically the whole crew scatters. The doctor goes off on his book tour, his speaking tour about holographic sentient rights. So there's Seven, who has had Earth built up as this paradise, this place where she'll be welcomed and she'll come home and this and that. And she gets back and this is a place she has no memory of. She's, for all intents and purposes, has never been here. She doesn't know it. She doesn't know the people. She doesn't know the culture. And everyone's afraid of her because she's got visible Borg implants that cannot be removed without killing her. And if you keep in mind, this is 2378 when Voyager comes home. This is only about five years after Earth has very narrowly survived an attack by the Borg in uh, Star Trek First Contact. So the people of Earth, especially the government uh, of the Federation and Starfleet Command, they are all understandably anxious and suspicious uh, of Seven. They, they don't think they can trust her. And part of what fuels that distrust is when they try to give her citizenship papers that say Annika Hansen, she keeps insisting her name is Seven of Nine, which is a Borg designation. And that just freaks them out. They don't like that. So Seven finds herself not at home in this place that is supposed to be home. She's not welcomed by the people she was told were going to welcome her home. Even her aunt Irene, she finds out, still flinches when you know Seven hugs her because Irene sees the Borg implants. Irene still calls her Annika, no matter how many times Seven says, my name is Seven. So she's getting dead named all the time. And it just sort of reaches a breaking point when, you know, in the story at the very beginning, someone graffitis the house where Seven is staying, you know, down at the, you know, uh, down on the southern tip of South Africa outside Cape Town. 
somebody writes die Borg bitch on the side of her house. And the cops say, well, it's probably just teenagers, but they're not really trying to find who did it. So Seven realizes she has to go on a journey. She doesn't know who she really is. All of her formative years were stolen from her, her childhood, her adolescence, her young adulthood, the years that we all take for granted when we're figuring out who we are as people, where our talents lie, where our interests lie, what do we want to be, uh, you know, who are we attracted to, uh, learning the sort of the social rituals that, you know, come with being part of our society. This all happens during childhood, adolescence, young adulthood. Well, she's missed all of it. And so she's a total consummate outsider. And she is just going to have to go and figure this out. And plus, she's also, you know, sabotaged or self-sabotaged her relationship with Chakotay, uh, which, you know, seemed a little bit awkward when they tried to tack it on to the end of Voyager. And then when you factor in that by her own admission in Picard, you know, she says that, you know, they denied, they wouldn't recognize her citizenship and they wouldn't let her into Starfleet. Well, that is the sort of thing that can build a lot of resentment. And I could see that, you know, so in the book, I established that the relationship with Chakotay kind of faltered. He gets put in charge of a brand new classified top secret ultra tech Starfleet thing. And she can't go with him. They won't even let her set foot on that ship. She can't go near it. He can't even tell the name of it to her. Well, that kind of torpedoes that relationship. So she goes off and she's trying to find herself. She's alone in the galaxy. And... She gets approached by someone who offers her everything she wants. I'll, I can make you a Federation citizen. I can get you into Starfleet. All you got to do is do a little bit of spying for the Federation Security Agency, which is their civilian counterintelligence agency, sort of like the FBI. She gets sort of pulled into this, and she's supposed to gather intelligence on the Fenris Rangers. Instead, she finds herself insinuating herself into a crisis to save a Fenris Ranger and... Very quickly, she winds up becoming a Fenris Ranger. And within a very short span of time, she figures out she likes it. She's more at home here. They, they welcome her much more easily than Starfleet ever did. Fenris Rangers are sort of like this band of, you know, merry band of rogue outcasts, like a, a Robin Hood's band. Uh, but they roam the stars and they stop brigands and they bring in fugitives and they protect travelers and shipping and whatever. So... She joins the Rangers. She meets the first great love of her life, a troll woman named Ellery Cade. And she goes on this adventure that sort of shatters some of her moral illusions, uh, sort of breaks the worldview that she had taken for granted while living on Voyager. And she has to learn a new way of being. She has to learn how to exist and survive in this much harsher, crueler world than the one she was told to prepare for. And uh, it's basically about her coming into her own, breaking away, establishing her own identity, uh, establishing herself as a, a queer adult woman, uh, and, and basically staking out her claim on, you know, this is my life and I'm going to live it my way. And so it's a, a classic coming of age tale. It's, you know, person goes on, you know, leaves home, goes on a journey, gets into an adventure and is changed and in the process achieves maturity, insight, and independence. I think one of the things as you were kind of going through the story there that kind of struck me, and it was something we discussed when we were doing, say, the Next Generation reviews, is that with Seven, with, say, 
data and I'll give it I'll, I'll explain what I'm saying about data in a second is that we've watched this character on TV we've seen the crew we trust their decisions and all that kind of thing but I used to joke about the amount of times that data would malfunction and do something wrong and the amount of times Picard probably had to go to Starfleet again saying listen it's fine it's the fifth time it's happened but it won't happen a sixth time yeah. kind of thing and we kind of, you know, trust because we're, oh, it's data. We know data and things like yes, that. Yes, he took over the ship. He locked us all out of the computer. But it was, <laughs> it's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> and the same with Seven, that situation in terms of, you know, we kind of, you know, we've been on the sh- on Voyager with her. We've seen her kind of grow and all that kind of thing. But to the common person, as you said, when they see her, they're, they're going like, the Borg have tried to assimilate us loads of times and probably will try and do it again in the morning. How can we really trust someone like that? And like, as much as we want to look at the Star Trek future as being this idealistic paradise, people still have that fear in them of and prejudice in, in those situations that we've seen in Star Trek and things like that. So I was really interested in how you kind of brought that about with the character that Starfleet very much were there going, no, we're not going to take her in. Yeah, I mean, we first of all, we saw that sort of fear, that kind of paranoia in Deep Space Nine. Uh when you know they, they came to earth you know and uh, they thought they had changed the infiltrators and you know starfleet was ready to put earth under martial law and earth was almost ready to just go along with it until somebody stepped in and go hey wait a second here but that that fear especially in times of danger it's a paradise but paradises can falter uh, yeah it's not a perfect paradise it's a striving for paradise but it constantly requires maintenance upkeep uh, renewal and part of what Starfleet points out to Janeway and another character, uh, Kima Geis, the director of the FSA, says, where says, Look at your own logs about seven on at least three and maybe more instances. She took control of your ship by force or mutinied or got out of your custody by force, tried to deliver at least herself and sometimes you and your crew and your ship into Borg control. She did it at least three times, and she used violence against your crew in each instance. Uh, and she, you know, she's citing all these instances, and Janeway is trying to explain, like, well, first of all, post-traumatic stress disorder, Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, she, you know, was not even really fully acclimated back to being human yet. Uh, there, was, there are a lot of mitigating factors here. That's not what Starfleet sees. What Starfleet sees is Janeway putting an inordinate and hard to justify amount of trust into this liberated Borg drone who shows no signs at first of wanting to be liberated and somehow tolerating all of Seven's worst excesses, all of her worst mistakes, and just sweeping them under the rug. Uh, But in the end, Janeway does prove justified. Seven does prove to be a valuable member of the crew. She has abilities, not just because of her Borg nanoprobes, but innate abilities in and of herself, her intellect, uh, you know, her, 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 you know, her focus, her sense of moral clarity once she sort of, you know, breaks free of Borg conditioning. She has a lot to offer. And Janeway was the one who saw that and nurtured that. But Starfleet is not Janeway. Uh, Starfleet is a bureaucratic organization. Uh, Janeway is an individual with individual judgment. And at the time, separated from the Federation and Starfleet, 70,000 some odd light years from home, 
Janeway was on a ship where she essentially had absolute authority. She was queen. When you're queen, you can do as you like. You say it, it's law, it's done, you're queen. She was queen. Now she's home. She's not queen anymore. And that's the problem. She is trying to get people to trust her judgment, and she's not queen anymore. I'm thinking of a scene in DS9 in the fourth season, just after Worf had joined the crew, and he was giving out to Odo about the state of security on the station. And then Odo pulls out the receipts and starts listing out all the times there was issues on the Enterprise D. <laughs> I thought it was genius, because then they're going, that's right, he's totally right, Worf. You've completely made a balls in these situations. I forget that he did Odo at some point say, also, there's a report of you drawing your phaser and pointing it at a view screen. I'm going to see Worf just go, <laughs> Jody, what question do you have? Well, obviously, this I enjoyed the book. I'm just going to put that out there. So it, bravo to you on that. Um, but, you know, we've had like over two decades to kind of fans to develop their own headcanon about where seven was after Endgame and Voyager. So what made you after, you know, learning what we learned about her and Picard made you go back to this era of her life and want to explore this period? Well, first of all, it's because I was asked to. Oh. That's, uh, pretty much where it begins. <laughs> I was at lunch with my editors, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, maybe two years ago or so. And they said, hey, uh, we'd like you to write a book about Seven of Nine, how, when, and why she joined the Fenris Rangers. Uh, would you like to do that? And I said, uh, yes, please. Because <laughs> back when Picard first started streaming, uh, you know, with dropping new episodes week by week, when Stardust City Rag, episode five of season one, dropped, I paused it in the middle of watching the episode for the very first time just to pick up my phone, email my editor, and say, I'd like to write a Fenris Rangers novel. Uh, within about five minutes, my in the middle of the night, my editor replied, yeah, you and everybody else. <laughs> um, but she said, you're going to have to wait. The producers have said hands off the Fenris Rangers just for now because they don't know yet what they want to do with them, how they want to use them. Until the producers tell us it's okay, we have to stay hands off. Well, once Picard wrapped up season three, we were told, okay, you can write a Fenris Ranger story. We're probably not doing anything big with them in the near future. And so I got this commission from my editors. And when I went back and I said, okay, when would she have joined the Rangers? So I had to start looking at canon. And what is established, you know, Picard takes place season one in 2399. She has the flashback sequence to when she tries to rescue Echeb and finds, you know, that Echeb has been brutally uh, tortured and maimed by Bejazel. That's in 2386. And at this point, you know, we're told that uh, she's already a ranger at this point, that the rangers were cooperating with Starfleet in some capacity. Icheb, who would have come home with her in 2378, has been through the Academy four years. So that's 2382. And he's had four years in Starfleet, long enough to become a lieutenant. So we're figuring, okay, so he's gone through all this. What has Seven been doing? And I thought to myself, well, she can't have just joined the, the Fenris Rangers. She wouldn't have joined the Fenris Rangers just for Icheb. It's established in her dialogue, the reason this happened to Icheb is that she was already acting as a, she was already a Fenris Ranger when she was approached 
by Bejazel, who was basically posing as someone who wanted to join the Fenris Rangers. And Bejazel basically pumped her for information. And when she got the lead on Icheb, that put the target on Icheb's back. And that's, you know, has, and that's why that's the framing sequence of the book, is to ground it in Picard, uh, you know, in the series. But I'm like, okay, so if she's already been a ranger long enough that somebody would approach her as being notable, someone you would go to, she must have been in for a while. So I started doing the math. I'm like, well, she has to have joined somewhere within a few years of coming home because the way she says it in Picard season three, when she's explaining to someone what happened with her in Starfleet, she said, you know, we, we came home, Voyager got home, uh, we got back to Earth. Uh, I applied to Starfleet. Uh, they said no. Admiral Janeway tried to intervene. They said no again. I was shut out. Uh, and at that point, I just went full Ranger. So it sounds like it, it, the way she says it, you know, they said no, I went full Ranger. This is cause and effect. This happened, so this happened. This happens because of this. There is an immediate consequence. So it's not as if years are going to go by between these two events. Uh, so I, I start off with that instigating event. I'm like, that probably happened, let's say, within about a year of Voyager coming home. Voyager comes home, 2378. First, there's going to be all the parties. There's going to be all the parades. There's going to be the press tour. Uh, you're going to have to get seven acclimated to living on Earth. You're not going to apply to Starfleet right away. You're going to want to get her citizenship papers squared away. You got to do all this other paperwork. So let's assume that eats a year of your life. So now it's 2379. And you start filing the applications and you start putting in the paperwork and Janeway starts trying to pull strings. Well, bureaucracies move slow for a reason. Nobody wants to be the one who get blamed for making any decision. So you're always trying to make sure that it looks like it wasn't up to you. It was above you. But the people above you can say, well, I never said that. So they're trying to figure out how to pass this buck. That probably eats another year of her life before she gets so fed up with the runaround between the Federation Council saying, well, no, you're actually not a citizen. Uh, and Starfleet saying, no, you can't have an officer's commission. And no, you can't go to the academy. And no, we're not going to let you enlist either. Uh, that probably eats you know, about a year, give or take. So I'm like, okay, so now we're probably in 2380. She's been home for two years. She's been facing nothing but prejudice, getting nothing but grief. And now she feels like the longer this goes on, the more it's going to embarrass Janeway. At least that's what she's telling herself. She's telling herself that she's, she's doing this and putting an end to this and she's going to go away because she doesn't want to embarrass Janeway, her surrogate mother figure. What she's really running away from is that she's embarrassed. She feels humiliated. She feels denigrated and, and run down. But she doesn't want to admit these feelings, so she externalizes them. Rather than admit the interior pain, she projects it outward and says, I don't want to keep hurting Admiral Janeway. Yeah. But that's externalizing her own pain. She's actually running away because she's humiliated. And she's angry and she wants out. So I'm like, all right. So at that point, you know, it's not going to take long. Uh, so I figured let's get, you know, I mean, this is a very ripe, dramatic time in her life. You know, uh, she loses her whole emotional support network. Her whole found family scatters. She's rejected by the culture she's come home to. 
this is very fertile territory for storytelling. So that's a big part of why I chose to start the story there and ground most of it in that era of roughly 2380 to 2381. Um, that is when she goes through this transformative journey. She finally works up the, the gumption to leave home. Uh, as everyone does at some point in our life, either literally or figuratively, at some point you have to leave your parents' house. You have to become your own adult in whatever shape or form that takes. At some point you have to just for better or worse, you know, good or ill, you, you leave home and you take your shot and you just have to become what you're going to become. And so that's what this story is. It's the point where Seven realizes she can't stay at home anymore. She's got to go out. And so that seemed like something that was going to happen pretty early in the continuity in terms of after Voyager came home. Uh, and also it just made sense that, you know, she would have time to join the Rangers and build a reputation before she's approached by someone like Bejazel. So that was why I decided to have her get into the Rangers around 2381. Uh, and while this conflicts with, say, some of the information on fan sites, uh, like Memory Alpha or Memory Beta, which conjecturalized you know, her joining the Fenris Rangers in 2386, that makes no sense. If you've been rejected by, if she was rejected by Starfleet in 2379, 2380, why would she wait six years to do something about it? That makes no sense. From a character motivation standpoint, from a, a story continuity standpoint, it's pure logic. It makes no sense. And it also doesn't track with her own dialogue. I was rejected, so I went full ranger. Yeah. One to the other. Cause, effect. And David, just out of curiosity, so obviously we have a situation whereby we're used to having seen her relationship with Janeway, Janeway being her mentor and all that. In this book, mm -hmm. then, she obviously encounters Harper, and Harper becomes a kind of a mentor to her as well. Obviously, you know, you can't have the same mentor all the time or it'll just be extremely boring. In say, what was your inspiration for a character like Harper? And in what way did you kind of want to, I'm not necessarily saying you did intentionally say, I'm going to give a totally different mentor to Janeway, but what was your approach with Harper and what relationship did you want him to have with Seven? Well, he was specifically crafted to be uh, a surrogate father figure. She's had this surrogate maternal figure in Janeway. And of course, throughout, you know, the, the last four seasons of Voyager, in many senses, Seven was a child caught between the dark mother of the Borg Queen and the light mother uh, of Janeway. And she's basically being pulled toward one pole or the other, and she eventually has to choose. So having made that choice, and she's chosen her, her, her benevolent uh, maternal, uh, surrogate maternal figure, but now she has to break away from that. But on some level, she's still not ready to be 100% independent. And so she encounters Harper. She finds him at a time of need when he's in need and she comes to his rescue. And this is how she gets basically fast-tracked into the Rangers uh, where he's a senior Ranger. And I specifically saw him as, you know, it's, he's described in the book as, you know, a man uh, in his 60s. And he knows he's slowing down. He's losing a step. He knows his time is short. Uh, you know, he's not going to be very effective in the field as a ranger for much longer. Um, but he does have a lot of knowledge to pass on. And he has a certain amount of wisdom 
and he sees in Seven a kindred spirit, someone who doesn't like to take crap, who can tell when the rules are useless or are actually impeding justice. Uh, he sees in her someone who has the fire to get things done, to be that sort of spark that will reignite the Rangers' sense of mission, which has begun to falter as the Rangers have started losing legitimacy. So I specifically pictured him as surrogate father figure. Uh, he was you know, never intended to be <clears throat> in any way sort of a potential you know, romantic interest. That was never the intent. First of all, he would have been wildly age inappropriate, but he was supposed to be surrogate father. And that's why, you know, spoiler alert near the end of the book, um, you know, there is a scene in which she explicitly equates him uh, with her father and she realizes it, but only too late. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was the intention there. He's essentially, she's broken away from the mother figure. She needs a different type of guidance into a new life. Um, and the mentor, the, the guide she chooses to lead her into that life Having left the surrogate mother, she now goes to the surrogate father. So it's sort of, again, it's about parallels. We tend to seek out, even when we leave home, as adults, we tend often to try to recreate the dynamics of the family unit with which we grew up, with which we matured. And in a lot of respects, that's what Seven does here. She has lost one found family, where she had the found family of her surrogate siblings on Voyager, with the mother figure, and now she has the surrogate father figure of Harper and her Fenris Ranger brothers and sisters. She's replaced the dynamic she lost with this one. She's basically found a place where she feels comfortable because this reminds her on a subconscious level, this is home. This is what home feels like. Surrogate parent, siblings, organizational structure, sense of mission. But less structured and less rigid than Starfleet, which suits her. So it was a very deliberate choice to draw these parallels between the two organizations and then to find the sort of parallel. I didn't want her to go from one mother figure to another mother figure because that was just too complicated a dynamic. But going to a father figure, I felt, uh, offered a possibility for a different emotional sense of connection, especially when you think about how it plays from Harper's point of view. Um, fathers, you know, the way they dote on their daughters, it's a different relationship than between mothers and daughters. So speaking of that relationship with Harper, he really from the get-go, I think in the book, which is entertaining, um, is kind of introducing to these colloquial phrases and, you know, things that she doesn't quite understand yet, which is perfect where seven, we left seven in Voyager. That still is, that naivete is still in existence, but was it hard or was there any challenge to getting in her mindset to interact in that fashion with these new kind Not of really, folks? Yeah. <laughs> it was helpful that, again, I rewatched a bunch of Voyager episodes mm -hmm. and I had watched Voyager when it was first on. So I was familiar with the characters, their voices, their personas. Seven is such a well-drawn character, both in the writing and then in Jerry Ryan's performance, the way she interprets and brings that character to life mm -hmm. with her choices as an actor. Uh, they're just so distinctive, so crisp, so pure. She really just found the core of that character and channels it. So when I'm writing Seven, I just 
picture, you know, if I'm watching this on the screen and I'm watching and listening to Jerry Ryan, I play it back in my head and I hear Jerry Ryan's voice as Seven. Does it sound right? Would Seven say that? I mean, she was starting to break out of some of the stiffer patterns mm-hmm. uh, near the end of Voyager. She was beginning to pick up on some colloquial turns of phrase. She was beginning to learn how to use idioms, uh, metaphors, you know, things like that. But some of them still eluders. It's not even a naivete. It's just that yeah, she yeah. hasn't had decades of exposure to the culture. Uh, she hasn't had anybody to walk her through all these wonderfully uh, obscure idioms. Uh, so she's sort of picking them up as she goes along. So I had that template already set in my mind for seven. So all I had to do was say, does seven sound like seven? Then for Harper, what I often do, especially with a major supporting character in a book, is I will imagine an actor template. Uh, I'll pick a favorite actor, for instance, who I think embodies what I'm looking for in that character. Ooh, who did you pick for Harper then, Davis? Yeah, uh, I picked Jeff Bridges. Uh, You might know from Big Lebowski, but I'm thinking of Jeff Bridges (laughs) more recently from the FX series called The Old Man. The Old Man. Yeah. I'm picturing Jeff Bridges from The Old Man. So, you know, you hear that in Jeff Bridges' voice, you know, saying, you know, truth or comfort, kid. I can only get one. He's got that gravel. He's got that, 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 yeah. uh, that edge, that rasp, that Jeff Bridges rasp. So I'm picturing, you know, Jeff Bridges, white-haired, you know, the face is lined. This is a man who's seen, a, you know, a lot of hard weather, a lot of hard light years. And, but he's got wisdom. He's got gravitas. And he's got, you know, enough guts left that he's willing to go into the fight. Like, you know, he's willing in a dog fight to push his ship to such extremes that he nearly blacks out behind the stick. He's ready. He's still willing at his age to push himself to that limit. So this is a guy who has no shortage of courage, mm. but he knows that his body is failing him little by little. Time is going to fail him. There's lots of hints. I mean, major spoiler alert. There are hints and foreshadowing all through the book from the moment you meet him that his time is short. Mm-hmm. From the tragedy that defines his first scene and sets that template uh, through the fact that when the first time he meets seven, seven is coming to his rescue after he's going on without the partner. He just lost. He goes into a bad situation. He makes a tactical error and he doesn't realize what he's done until it's too late. And he's surrounded and he's about to get his ass handed to him. And that's when seven comes to his rescue. And from his point of view, he describes her in his imagination as, a Valkyrie, you know, coming in guns blazing to save his ass. The thing is, Valkyries, they're not supposed to be warrior women. The whole point of the Valkyrie is that they are the ones who come down after the battle and carry the spirits of the worthy to Valhalla. Mm-hmm. The Valkyrie is a psychopomp. The, Val- the Valkyrie is there to usher you into the next world. That's the purpose of the Valkyrie. Um, and then again, you know, when we catch up with them, like after the midpoint of the book when uh, Ellery and Seven have finally become together as a couple, they find him, you know, at the wall of heroes inside Fenris Ranger headquarters where there's all the names and the badge stars and whatever and the names of the fallen. And he's sort of looking at this and, you know, he tells Seven, make sure your name never ends up on this wall. And she says, well, you too. And he goes, no promises. Yeah. Again, 
every little detail that this guy is telling you, he knows, he can feel it in his bones. Something bad is coming. He knows his time is almost up. One of the things I like that Harper. I... Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. sorry, Jody, after you. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, one of the things I really enjoyed about Harper was that, you know, yes, I think he was very self, like, introspective about where he was in life. But I also like that he very quickly identified Seven's abilities and and embraced that, which was very anti-Starfleet. Yes, yeah. yes. He fights and for that, her. He stands up for her. Yeah. And she needed which that, is right? The same she thing needed Janeway that. does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something she needed at that point in her life. And I think that was a great way to bring in that kind of like you said, that male role model, that male mentor. But it was it was great good to ally. see him embrace her. He's a yes. good ally. Yes. And David, one of the things that was interested me in the book, and it's something that you alluded to earlier on in this conversation, is about Janeway being kind of Queen Bee and things like that. And what I really enjoyed about a lot of the scenes with Janeway is that she'd be told that she was wrong or she couldn't do something and just constantly her going, basically, stuff you, that's not going to happen. I'm Janeway. I did enjoy the fact that she basically said, do you think I'm not above like calling on my popularity? Because you're very much wrong. I completely will. But what I really enjoyed most is she consistently states her objection to the Fenris Rangers and what her opinion is of that. Mm-hmm. And as the book went by, I was constantly there going, is she going to stick with that objection? Because we know ourselves that Seven is going to stay with them. And I was curious, would there be the change of heart? And I really liked at the end that there wasn't and that the book ended with her still warning Seven no, they're useless and they're going to fall apart in time. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the book, we jump back forward again. And Seven basically says, do you know what? She was actually right. Like, how important was it for you to kind of say, Janeway absolutely isn't going to you know, like change her opinion here. She knows she's right and she's going to stick with it. It was very important in that Janeway has her viewpoint. She has her opinion and she's grounded it in her experience and her beliefs. And those, those are not going to change. It's not the the conflict between her and Seven uh, from a philosophical point of view is not about either one persuading the other to see things the same way. It's the point, again, this is something that I think has to happen uh, to maintain healthy relationships between uh, parents and their adult children. Once their children have become independent adults capable of making their own judgments, there are going to be times when you're just not going to see things the same way. Uh, you know, the, the, the kid will choose a career path the, the parent thinks is ill-advised or you know, will undertake some other life choice that the parent says, well, you know, I just I can't condone that. But the problem is, is that it's not yours to condone or not condone. That time is over. Uh, the question now is, do you trust your offspring to take this responsibility on and make good judgments despite whatever objections you have. And Seven basically voices that as, you know, I I don't need you to condone my choices. I just need you to trust me. Hmm. And that's the point where Janeway sort of sees the light and she realizes, you know, this is not my child. She's not under my command anymore. This is not my judgment to make, but do I trust Seven? Yes, I trust Seven. She's intelligent. She's upright. She's courageous. She's noble. She's decent. If she sees value in this path, 
even if I think it's a mistake, I trust Seven to do the right thing while she's on that path. I may not trust every Fenris Ranger, Janeway might think, but I trust Seven. I'll trust her. She'll stick to her own judgment. She's not going to change her opinion of the Rangers as an organization uh, unless she sees new solid evidence to the contrary. But she does trust Seven. She trusts that Seven individually will do the right thing. And so that is what enables her and Seven to finally regard each other as equals at the end of the book when Janeway says to her, call me Catherine. It's like, you don't have to refer to me as Admiral anymore. We are now friends. We are equals. You know, we are not surrogate parent and child. I am no longer your mentor. You are in the world. I am in the world and we are equal. Yeah, it was well done. I The way that that relationship progressed, but yet they stayed true to who they were. It, it was it came across nicely in the book so i appreciated that um i think another one of the things that i think it's the forte of the book and you write these so well but the action scenes or sequences of the book are are stellar um oh, i so think much. they're the they really propel the story i, I think i mean, show and i talk a little bit about this but that i mean it made you want to keep reading to see what was up next and that, i that's think that's my job Yes, absolutely. Well, you did it well, sir. So, well, unfortunately, um, I've, I've you know had a number of years to to practice through a number of books. Uh, a number of years ago, I sort of felt like I had gotten off the track, and I was reading the work of fellow novelist James Swallow, who I think may as you may have had as a guest. Yeah, at some point. he's been on here. Yeah, yeah. James, uh, I was reading some of his Mark Dane thrillers, uh, you know, his modern day spy thrillers, which are just excellent, excellent books. And really what they are is if you go through them, they're a masterclass in how to write thrillers. And I sort of realized as I went through and I said, why is this working so well? Why am I always flipping pages? Why do my manuscripts lately not feel like this? So I began analyzing how he structured his chapters and his scene breaks. And I realized that what he was doing that I was failing to do at that time was he would end the chapter on an action cliffhanger moment in the middle of or at the start of an action scene that would leave you going, holy shit, what just happened? And you'd have to keep going into the next chapter to get the rest of the scene. And by the time that happens, you're like, oh, well, I might as well just finish the chapter. And then the son of a bitch does it again. <laughs> I'm like, you you masterful bastard. <laughs> so I, I realized that this was a very, very useful, very good technique to remember to end chapters, uh, not on just the end of a scene, uh, because that can feel too easily like a place to say, oh, well, that's over. I can put the bookmark in now. Right. you got to end on some sort of incomplete thought that tantalizes with possibility. Some kind of cliffhanger, some kind of looming threat, cut in the middle of an action sequence, something that makes you go, well, I, what now? you got to have something like that at the end of every chapter in order for it to feel propulsive. And that was something that, you know, I think I lost sight of for a little while. But fortunately, reading James's book uh, really just kind of brought it back to me. Well, David, I have to take issue with you then, because the amount of times I was reading the book and I would say to my fiance, 
I'm just going to finish this chapter and we'll go. We'll do whatever it was. And you get to the end of the chapter, but you're going, but I need to know what's going to happen next. So I'd be scrolling through to see how many pages be in the following chapter to see, can I quickly read it and buy myself enough time to get through it in time? But as Jody said, it was a total page turner. Every single time I tried to put it down, I was there going, no, but I just, just if I can just get through the next chapter, it'll be fine. It'll kind of slow down. But every time I did that, it was this pay, the pace kept going. I wanted to know more. And like when I put the book down, I'd be thinking about it then afterwards. And I'd be there going, oh, so I'll get back down and just see what's going to happen. Because <laughs> it constantly kept you engaged. And as Jody said, I'd be sending her messages saying, like, I know this isn't the end game. And I, I have to understand now where we're going with the story. So mm-hmm. well done from that kind of point of view. Again, like, again, I know it is your job. And I know, as you said, you learned from James, <laughs> but this book absolutely brought all of that together. No, thank you. Very kind. I think the other thing that I I was astounded by, and I could, I'm kind of this way with all of Star Trek, but and maybe you can speak to a little bit, but the amount of technology and um, geography that you cover in the book um, extensively and in detail enough that it makes me wonder how much research you have to do into the Trek world to put something like this together. What do you mean by geography? Like the, the different planets that are involved? Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, kind of like, you know, the just Most understanding of them I made up. the layout. Yeah. <laughs> Soroya I made up. Utsira I made up. Uh, Otroya I made up. Uh, Zirat, the Starship Graveyard, made it up. Uh, <laughs> I used Free Cloud. That's from Picard. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and as you may have seen at the front of the book, there's front matter, there's uh, the star charts, the maps. The map, yeah. Those yes. Are. So you have a sense of geographically where they lie in relation to one another, where the Kiris sector is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that. I did a bunch of research for to find out, you know, to, to, to choose a location from Jeff Mandel's book, Star Trek Star Charts, to pick a square and say, all right, that's the Kiris sector. I had a lot of criteria that I had to fulfill. It had to have unclaimed space. It had to have part of it on one side of the neutral zone and part of it on the other. Uh, it wanted to be near Federation space, but it also needed to be near Romulan space and probably Klingon space. Uh, and it had to have a proximity to Free Cloud because uh, that's where the Rangers keep their money and you're not going to bank on the far side of the galaxy. <laughs> so I went through with all these criteria and eventually I settled on this one square uh, that has like, you know, part of the, you know, has the Romulan neutral zone sort of stretching through it. And it's got Lambda Hydra right there, smack dab in the middle of the square. I'm like, that's perfect. That's the square. That's Kiris. And then I did some research to say, all right, where does Free Cloud sit? At the time, I didn't have any of the maps that the production staff at Picard had been using. I hadn't been given access to those. So I just kind of had to figure it out on my own. And so I looked up, there was an interview by Michael Shaben saying that, uh, you know, he had situated Free Cloud in the real world star system of Alpha Doradus, uh, which, and he said, is in the Iconia sector. So I found Iconia, and I found this little, you know, little square, mm-hmm. and it's on the other side of the Romulan neutral zone, just outside the Romulan neutral zone. I'm like, all right, so somewhere in this square, all right. So I did the math, I'm like, all right, well, let's see. Delta Doradus, constellation partner of Alpha Doradus, is here. I'm like, all right. And so straight line here to here on the map. So from Seoul to here, all right, that's uh, that's Delta. And I looked at the chart and I'm like, there's 15 degrees of apparent separation between the two. Take a 15 degree separation and extend it across all these light years, and that puts it 
right about there. So I zinged in and boom, that's how I play free cloud. Uh, so it's based on real astronomy, real star charts, actual math. You know, I had to actually figure out like the, not just the angle, I had to figure out the declination, which is basically if you've got the galactic plane, not everything sits on this flat galactic plane. We're not all on the same level. So the straight line distances between stars are not what they appear. Mm. It may look like the stars like right over here, but what if it's also way down here? Mm. So you got to take into account z-axis distance. Yeah, uh, and that changes based on declination. So you know these stars, Alpha and Delta Doradus, are at a really steep angle down from Sol in the southern hemisphere. They're like way the hell down here. Uh, and it foreshortens their apparent distance on the map. So even though it's 170 light years away, it only looks like 112 on the map. Yeah. Because it's foreshortened. So again, I had to do that kind of math. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of research, uh, you know, sort of getting facts straight. Uh, fortunately, that's where memory alpha and memory beta come into play. I look up a lot of things. And then I just, I make up, you know, what I, what everything else I need, urban environments, planets, uh, to give it all a feeling of sort of, you know, a cohesiveness, a, a thematic quality, because we were doing a story about Fenris Rangers, which is from, you know, Fenris Wolf, North, Norse mythology, um, I basically pulled up a map of Norway, and whenever I needed a name for a place, a planet, a city, whatever, I would go and I'd find a, a, a name I liked on the map of Norway, and I put it in the story. So, you know, the, the place that uh, Seven is living in at the beginning of the book, Starheim, that's a town in Norway. Utsira, town in Norway. Otroya, <laughs> town in Norway. Uh, and so on. Zirat, that's located in Norway. <laughs> I really just pull a whole I love that. It's got a North. And then, of course, you know, uh, how does. Uh, you know, Harper see her, he sees her as a Valkyrie. Where's that from? Norse mythology. <laughs> Again, I stayed in the theme. I stayed with an overall theme. You can make a lot of aspiring uh, writers uh, feel a lot more comfortable about their choices of naming. Uh, just go to a theories. map and just pull names. Just find them, yeah. Did the I'm... same thing apply to like the weaponry? Because there's obviously an extensive use of weaponry and you know, someone yeah, just made up, you know, the uh, the Talarian stingers. I just cooked that up because I can't. I was going to call them blasters. I'm like, no, you can't call them blasters. That's Star Wars. Right. You know, say blasters. Everybody hears Star Wars. They so can't yeah. say blaster. Uh, but not everybody uses disruptor. And disruptor right. has a lot of syllables and it's uh, gets up to be a pain in the a pain in the ass to say. So I came up with uh, Talarian stingers and then eventually I just came up with pulse pistols and, you know. So uh, it made it it all made it seem very unique to the Rangers, you know, that their their dialogue wasn't the same or their their naming of things weren't the same as what we have always seen. Yeah, they call them medics whistlers because of the medical tricorders. And right. Right. So that was it was fun to, you know, experience. Um, don't forget the meat identifier. Right. <laughs> Yes, I, that was I, great. I think as well, what's really kind of important about that again is because our perception of Star Trek is kind of like almost exclusively limited to the crews that we kind of deal with. So I've been always a fan of seeing like 
different ships, different crews, different kind of personnel, because they have their own way, their own structure of doing things. So when we're uh-huh. introduced to that, it's great because it's still within the same universe, but it's these people's own way of doing things. I love them seeing our characters in the situation here, like Seven, going into this kind of thing where they have colloquial names for different kind of things, and she then has to kind of get used to it. It's not like they're giving it the same name that we're used to because we're used to it. It's they're going, well, no, this is our world. This is exactly kind of how we exist and things like that. David, as you were going through the story, what were the alternate approaches you had to kind of the story itself? Mm-hmm. Like what were the other kind of versions that you had? Or did you always just have this one version in your mind? The story was always somewhat along these lines. I mean, it was always a story of seven going on a journey of self-discovery, joining the Rangers as a result being pulled between the two sort of opposing philosophies of, you know, Janeway and the Starfleet way and the Fenris Ranger way and choosing her own path. Uh, Those were always elements of it. Uh, The first draft, you know, as usual, was probably a bit bloodier, a bit more violent, had a much higher body count. Um, And Kirsten Beyer, who is basically the liaison between Secret Hideout, the TV company that produces the current iterations of Star Trek. She serves as their liaison uh, to the publisher, and she has to vet all books and comic books and story materials that are based on the new versions of the show that they make. So because this was based on Picard, and because she's a co-creator of the Picard series, she basically had to give input on the book. And one of the first things she said was, this is a younger less violent version of seven this is not the seven we saw in start of city rag here she's still conditioned by her time with voyager this seven is not a killer yet this is the seven who pulled her punches in sukatsi this is not the seven who gunned people down at start of city rag she hasn't broken that way yet so one of the restrictions i was given after she you know after kirsten read the first draft of the story outline was Seven does not kill in this story. She's not a killer. And I said, okay, I can work with that. I'll revise accordingly. Uh, we debated a little bit about the, the, the time frame and the setting and a couple of other details. Uh, how liable did we want the bad guy to be personally versus did we want some of this uh, liability to actually land on the Federation itself. Mm-hmm. And the decision was made to have it be a rogue actor, somebody acting in bad faith, using the name of the Federation, but not actually acting on their authority. Mm-hmm. Um, so that decision was made. Uh, originally, the ending was going to be also a lot darker. This was back when I still had this concept of the Rangers as being more vigilante-esque. Mm. Uh, less like a, a police force that's become a little bit disorganized. When I originally saw them more as vigilantes, the original ending was an homage to a German film from 1927, I believe, called M. And it's by Fritz Lang. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, M was the first, one of the first films produced with synchronous sound. And it was one of the first police procedural films ever made. Ooh. Uh, so it's a detective film, and the story is very simple. It's Berlin in the you know the the Weimar Republic post World War One Depression years. Um, so it's very you know much the poor ghetto neighborhoods. There's a serial killer of children on the loose. Everybody is freaking the hell out, and the cops 
who can't seem to find the killer do something. They do whatever they can to look like they're trying to be proactive. They just start rounding up every criminal and every low life, whether they have anything to do with it or not. And they wind up completely disrupting all the activities of the black market, the criminal underworld, everything, to the point where it drives the criminals and the crime bosses so just so batty. They're just so upset about it that they have a council of you know of villains, basically a council of criminals. And they said the cops are never going to leave us alone. They're going to completely ruin all of us. And they're still not finding this idiot. We're still losing our kids. We're going to have to find this son of a bitch because the cops are useless. Uh, so the criminals band together and they turn like all the snitches, all the pickpockets suddenly turn into sentries. All the people who would normally be picking your pockets are now watching the corners. And they're observing everybody who gets anywhere near a kid. And they eventually find the guy. Somebody realizes it's him. This pickpocket uses a piece of chalk he picks up off the street writes an M for murderer on his hand and just sort of puts his hand to the back of the guy's coat as he's walking by him and making it like he's brushing past. The guy doesn't realize he's been marked with an M. And then the word goes out through the city, through the criminal network. Everybody's looking for, for M. And they find him and they run him up. And the cops get word of it. Now the cops are looking for him because they want credit for the bus. They don't want the criminals looking like they're the ones who are the true protectors of the city, because that's a disaster for law and order. Well, the criminals get the guy first, and they haul him into some huge warehouse. It's dark. There's like a spotlight on him. They're telling him what his crimes are and that he's basically, you know, screwed for luck. And he goes, this isn't right. You know, I have a right to a a legal defense. I have a right to a, a trial. I have a right to a jury of my peers. And the lights come up, and he's surrounded by hundreds of criminal lowlifes, and one of them just says, this is a jury of <laughs> And the guy knows he's dead. Yeah. He's fucked. <laughs> so originally that was more along the ending I was going for was something like really dark like that. And I was told, no, no, <laughs> no, it's not correct. No. So I was like, okay. So I said, so we, we talked it out. I said, all right, I will let go of that if we can come up with something else that at least feels cathartic uh, and has the right emotional tone. And what we eventually settled on was the ending that you read, uh, which is Seven learns to both play within the rules uh, and without sacrificing her moral code, she basically is able to get justice and bring down the guy who is essentially taunted her thwarted her uh and broken her heart uh you know with his atrocities with his Mm -hmm. you know uh you know all this foul deeds she finally gets him on her terms and is able to bring him to justice and hand him off and basically you know handing him off to a sergeant just as book him so you know it's basically that moment you know it's a book him dano moment uh her and her uh partner at that point uh Ellery K. So basically the two the two gay girls get to save the day. And what's your favorite personal moment from the book? Granted, I know you wrote it, but what's your favorite moment from the book? Ah. <laughs> uh, that's like asking, you know, again, a parent to choose favorite children. There's, and that's exactly what I've just done, David. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Sophie's choice. It's not fair. <laughs> it totally uh, is fair. Very fair question to ask altogether. Uh, well, you know, spoiler alert, uh, I guess it would have to be, you know, the when Keon Harper dies and passes the badge on 
to seven. Uh, I, I do sort of love just that little moment. But the moment that I really just, I had to sort of fist pump with you know, glee when I finally got to put it on paper is the climax where you know seven catches the bad guy and through the story he and other bad guys have been dead naming her because they've got like her starfleet or her federation mm-hmm. file that identifies her as annika hansen and then once again you know she keeps trying to correct them it's seven of nine and they keep calling her miss hansen and so she finally has this guy down uh she's captured him and she basically has to tell him, you know, I'm never again, am I going to let anybody shame me for being what I am, which is ex-Borg. And then, you know, she's basically looming over him. She says, and I will never, ever again let anybody tell me I don't know my own fucking name. And what I love about that is that this scene is an affirmation of also thematically uh, and subtextually what the book is about, which is about queer identity and trans identity. Uh, and the need to respect the humanity uh, of those uh, among us who are queer or trans. It's a very pro-queer, pro-trans book um, in that, you know, she just reaches that breaking point over being dead named, uh, over being discriminated against because she doesn't define her identity the way that society wants her to define her identity. Um, so those themes are also very important to the book and to me. Can you speak more to that as to why, especially um, as a lifelong member of the queer community, I <laughs> was questioning that a little bit in the book. Like, why was it important to identify Seven at this time, knowing that we had been given that in Picard? Mm-hmm. Well, what, I think that what made you decide to bring that on so early in her journey? Well, it seems like, you know, this is, again, it's going to be a classic part of a coming of age tale. Part of the classic structure of the coming of age story, especially uh, the literary buildings Roman, is that it is the time of self-exploration, of formation of the identity, uh, the realization of the truth of oneself. These are the things that are sought out in this particular uh, subgenre of, of fiction. So it seemed to me that one of the key things she was going to learn about herself when she's finally free of the cis-heteronormative incubator of Voyager uh, and out of the sort of, you know, very milk toast, very vanilla, very bland seeming culture of Earth in the Federation and gets out into the sort of rough and tumble world. Now she's going to be out there and she's going to have to say, where do I feel comfortable? Where do I feel like I fit in? Where do I go that feels like I belong there and people welcome me there as I am? And she tries out, I mean, it's implied that she's tried a bunch of places and that what she has settled on, she has settled on this particular bar in Starheim called Monsoon, which caters to the queer and trans community who just happen to like angry punk music. Uh, And so that's where she feels at home. She goes there to slam dance, you you know, in the mosh pit and drink and meet people and you know occasionally try to get lucky um but you know it was it was very clear obviously from uh picard that you know she had by that point was fully comfortable in that aspect of her identity but this is something that would have been completely new to her say when she first got home with voyager because it had never even been brought up on voyager Mm -hmm. so this is sort of uh, it was, I felt like it was an important part of the story and that I feel like it represents 
part of the struggle that everybody goes through at some point in their life, either in adolescence or young adulthood. Uh, again, as you try to figure out, you know, who am I? Who am I attracted to? What do I like? How do I, you know, what is the language I need to speak to get to where I want to be? Uh, where are my people? Uh, you know, where am I welcome? Where am I not welcome? Where do I have to be careful? What do I have? When do I have to code switch to protect myself? Um, and so this is something that felt like it was going to be, you know, these are just going to be key things that she's going to have to grapple with at this stage uh, in her, you know, uh, postponed and now suddenly accelerated development, mm. uh, which is why those elements were incorporated into the story. Um, and again, part of why it's important to me is that obviously, for some reason, the United States has gone completely batshit crazy. And, uh, you know, a bunch of right wing nut jobs are going out of their way to try and, or in some cases, succeed in passing legislation that dehumanizes uh, trans people, and which I can tell is clearly just the first shot, and eventually is going to be used to dehumanize queer people, and then anybody who doesn't fit their particular mold of what they think people ought to be. And that's got to be fought against. It's got to be, you know, pushed back. It's got to be uh, spoken out against. It's got to be vilified. The lie in it has to be exposed. And that's part of what fiction does well is it holds up the mirror and says, you know, the, all these arguments that they're making for why they're persecuting these people are bullshit. Uh, and that what we ought to be looking for is the common humanity that binds us together. And in the character of Elroy, then, uh, David, what exactly kind of characteristics did you want to give her as being a partner for Seven? Well, uh, I sort of templated her character in my mind on uh, the actress Jessica Henwick. Uh, if you've seen Iron Fist, the Marvel TV series, she played Colleen Wayne. Mm. Uh, she was also the blue-haired girl Bugs in Matrix Resurrections, uh, among other things. Uh, anyway, I just, I really liked Jessica Henwick's energy in that she's got this sort of persona of being uh, a little bit awkward, but very sweet, very charming. Um, there's just, there's something approachable about her. There's something uh, about her that just feels like she, she could be the girl next door. Um, and, you know, she's not too imposing. She's not someone... You, you'd probably feel comfortable just meeting her and just saying, hi, let's be friends. You know, it's a, she seems like she projects that kind of energy. And I felt like Seven, who's very pulled in, very tight, very guarded, very cautious, needs somebody who's very open, uh, who is going to openly reach out to her and sort of send her signals that say, hello, I'm over here. You know, uh, I like you. Hi. You know, she needs somebody who's going to send her some sort of easily read signal mm -hmm. to draw Seven out of her shell. And do you think at some point we'll get to see these characters again? Because it's one of the things that I kind of was disappointed when the book ended. I was there going, but there's more stories to tell and I'd like to know more. Because again, David, you've succeeded in uh, kind of we, we're drawn in now and I'm kind of there going, When's the next adventure we're going to see before it all falls apart for the Fenris Rangers? Well, I don't have any plans to write any more Fenris Rangers books, although if the editors ask me to and throw money at me, then that may change. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of why I ended the story where I did, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I wanted you to feel like, you know, she's found a new life. She's going to 
continue to interact with these people. They're going to get into adventures. They're going to go off and do stuff and they're going to have lives together and they're going to, you know, go through good times and bad times. And, you know, she and Ellery are going to have a dog. And, you know, I want you to picture like the end credits of this movie. If this were a movie, the end credits would be a lot of freeze frames of, you know, pictures of, uh, the Fenris Rangers and her, you know, Seven and Ellery with their dog and hanging around the ship and, you know, trying to wash the ship with sponges or getting into a hose <laughs> fight or something, you know, uh, food fights in the cafeteria, things like that. You Very know, just, 1980s I, comedy kind I, of thing. Like, yeah. I jinx, you know, just, yeah. you know, uh, having a good time. And, uh, but also part of why I ended it where I did it was there are a number of tropes that I know are uh, particularly pernicious in fiction uh things such as let's see uh bury your gaze i wanted to make sure we didn't have that one i had no use for that one i want to make sure that trope didn't get through the door uh i had no use for the trope where the person the interesting charming person of color has to die to show the situation is serious no no that one went right out the door lucan sagasta who is described as a man with dark brown skin and a bright white cheshire cat smile uh you know the the hot shot the ladies man the joker he survives. He does just fine. He makes it all the way through the story unscathed. Uh, another thing I had no use for was tragic queers. Oh, the story has to end in tragedy. No, bullshit. Fuck that. No, no. Relationships end, sure, for a lot of reasons. And we can read from canon or whatever that obviously her romance with Ellery didn't stick in the long run. But so many first love of your life don't stick anyway. I mean, some people marry the first love of their life and they stay together forever, and that's great. A lot more people don't. One time you have that big, important, early relationship, and then for whatever reason, maybe you have a fight, or maybe you just go different ways. Maybe one of you wants to say, you know, I'm sick and tired of people shooting at me. I'm done being a ranger. I'd like to take the dog and go and get a nice house somewhere and go back to civilian life. And the other person says, well, I'm not done yet. I still have a mission. And they still care about each other, but they go their separate ways. Relationships end for a lot of reasons other than somebody goes in the ground. Not some, Somebody doesn't always have to go in the ground. Mm -hmm. But the important thing was that what I wanted to end this story on was maybe not happily ever after, but happy for now kind of moment where we leave Ellery and Seven on a happy moment. Yes, someday some sort of twist of fate will come along and they'll be pulled apart but it's not this book and I'm not going to be the one to do it. Hmm. Uh, and we don't have to go through that. They can have their happy moment. And we see, you know, we have the, the epilogue at the end with seven in the bar. We know she's alone again by that point. Something has happened. She speaks of Ellery in the past tense. We realize that a reference she makes like early on is actually clearly was a reference to Ellery. Mm -hmm. So something has happened, but again, you know, we don't have to, spoil that happy moment we can let them in that moment we can let them have that moment of happiness uh and i don't see any reason why you know there's no need to take that away from them i i appreciate that i think um you know for all the things that picard did right and like identifying seven as queer for the first time you know and all this all this time and, and partnering her with raffi i think you know really did a lot for the queer fandom um one thing I think that Picard didn't do well was uh, kind of acknowledging and utilizing Seven's uniqueness with her Borg tech and abilities. And I mm -hmm. think that's something you do very well in the book. Um, oh, is that just from like your experience with Voyager and wanting knowing that she's so close to that and wanting to maintain that? 
because that I really enjoyed because I don't think we saw enough of that in Picard. In fact, I think that was underutilized to a fault. But in the book, great. Yeah, I, I was asked to sort of not go overboard with it because part of what Kirsten wanted to see was that um, Seven, because of the prejudice and bigotry she's faced over being uh, ex-Borg, and because she's trying not to scare the normies, basically, <laughs> is that she's trying to keep the full range of what her Borg implants and her Borg nanoprobes can do. So she's trying not to let loose and let you know her Borg implants do all the work for her. And part of it is that she's also trying to prove something to herself, that her worth is not measured by her implants, that her abilities are not defined by the nanoprobes, that she can accomplish things even when she doesn't rely on them. She doesn't want them to be a crutch. On the other hand, at a certain point, pushed to her limits and realizing it's life or death, at that point, screw it. All bets are off. It's war. You know, you're going to get the full Borg. You're going to get mm -hmm. everything she can throw at you. Yeah, it was well played. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Jody, do you have any other questions for David at the moment? I think we yeah. might have actually gone. Oh, no, we haven't. Oh, no. I'm <laughs> I've sorry. just got I'm a couple I'm, more. I che I'm checking your <laughs> list. I've got, I've got Jody's list here and my list on another page. <laughs> he hasn't even looked at his oh, questions. No. <laughs> Um, you we before this started, we talked a little bit about the Spotify list. Um, oh, yeah. And when you released that list, uh, it sent seven fans into an uproar. They were thrilled to have that. And the kind of guessing what what, what each song meant. Um, the hint and is you that kind right of mentioned, it's in chronological order of the story. Yeah, I listened to it again yesterday just to kind of having now finished the book, you know, to get a vibe and that's fun to listen to it now post book but what do you think seven's favorite tune would be on that a oh, bad reputation closing titles music yeah it, it encapsulates her whole journey i mean the yeah. if you listen to the lyrics like the reason i chose some of these songs in particular uh the first one uh running to stand still by u2 although mm -hmm. it's you know male vocalist bono it's a song about a woman uh, a woman living, you know, uh, you know, she's got to you know, scream without raising her voice. Uh, she's basically constrained. She's being held back. Her power is uh, basically being, you know, boxed up. This is a, you know, a woman who's got to get away. You know, uh, a situation is threatening to just, you know, she, she's under a black belly of cloud in the rain, as they say. Um, and so it's this, it sort of captures that sense of ennui that she's living with when she's in Cape Town. And that's where she is in terms of her emotional state, uh, her psychological state, when the story begins for her uh, in 23, you know, 80 or so in Cape Town. And where she is at the end of the story, you know, when it's her and Ellery holding hands and they've got their new ship and they're talking and they've got their plan in place to get a dog, it's bad reputation. Because at that point, she is a badass and she does not give one fuck what anybody thinks of her. She is done courting opinion. Yeah. She's done trying to get people's approval. She is here to kick ass and, and, and you know and eat lollipops. And she's fresh out of lollipops. Like you can say what you want about me. Bad reputation, I'll take it. You know, yeah. I want you to fear me. I want you to know my name and I want you to tremble when you hear it. Because I'm coming. And it very much so resonates with the seven that was we met 
in season one of Picard. You know, mm-hmm. like she didn't care. Bad she was talking. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Plus, you know, so Jones is just such a perfect sample. And then, of course, obviously, I'm sure you figured this out. Crimson and Clover. That's the moment she and Ellery meet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I, love I love those two tunes. Yeah, those two songs being on there were great. That was. I'm and a musician course, by all, trade, so yes, this all was great fun for me. And then tracks by Ammo and the Sniffers, uh, you know, Freaks to the Front is basically yeah. what I imagine is playing when she first gets to the bar. The Bar mm-hmm. Monsoon is named after another song by Ammo and the Sniffers. Starfire 500 is on the playlist. Uh, you might notice that's the name of the model of yes. Starship. <laughs> that's right, yeah. yeah. It was used for prowlers. In real life, Starfire 500 is a type of roller skates. Uh, but it's a cool song by Ammo and the Snippers, and I like the name, so I pulled They're it. They're all modes of transportation, one way or all another, modes of right? Transportation. <laughs> sure, yeah, it's all good. Uh, but, you know, so there's all these different tracks by, you know, Ammo and the Snippers. Control, because I feel like the song Control captures, again, where Seven is at that point, and that she's trying to hold herself together. Uh, you know, it captures the sort of inner rage the frustration, the passion, everything that's you know trapped inside her that she's trying to let out, uh, and she's trying to keep in control. Uh, so that's why I, I picked that song. And then right after it is you know uh, the rush by J.J. Wild, which is all about the intermingling of desire and shame. Uh, you know you're finally starting to figure out what you want, but you haven't learned not to be ashamed of it yet. Uh, there's a line in there about, you know, uh, if I'm glad my mother can't see me, which is a reference essentially to Janeway when I think of it in this context. Uh, you know, now is when I learned to forget because it's easier than to live with regret. Uh, she's basically you know, sort of leading this life, which is just not really living. It's just existing. But this is sort of that period she needs. She needs this time to explore in a safe space or at least in a an anonymous space, a place where her reputation doesn't follow her in and it's not going to follow her out. This is a place where what happens here stays here. She needs this time. She needs this fishbowl, basically. Um, so those are where those songs sort of came from. Obviously, the soundtrack stuff uh, is all just there for mood. Uh, the only one where the title track actually matches up to the action is Crash Landing. Yeah. Uh, that one's pretty obvious. Um, the battle on Zerat in the Starship Graveyard, although it doesn't track note for note, it was emotionally inspired by the tr- the track Norway Chase from the James Bond movie, No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. I love that music. I mean, it just, it captures the whole mood of that piece, of that whole sequence. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, after that is uh, a track called Lee's Choice uh, by a composer named Lorne Balf, who did the music for, among other things. Uh, his Dark Materials trilogy mm-hmm. on, on mm-hmm. HBO, all three seasons of that show. He's done a lot of the Mission Impossible soundtracks. He's one of my favorite composers ever. Um, and that track, Lee's Choice, obviously goes with the death of Harper. Yeah. So you know, if you read that scene and you, you listen to that track of music, you know, if you don't shed at least half a tear, you probably got a heart. <laughs> Lauren Balf can write the saddest fucking music in the world. <laughs> Do you listen to music when you write, or do you like quiet? Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, I need music. I can't, I can't focus when it's too quiet. I need yeah. music to ground myself either in an emotional state, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in terms of you know action, uh, momentum, that sort of a tempo, or I put on. I have a whole playlist of 
sad and tragic as opposed to sweet and romantic, uh, antics and caper. You know, I, so I have different playlists with different moods of tracks pulled from various soundtracks. I have hundreds of soundtracks. This is only a little bit. I've got huge stacks <laughs> over there. Oh my gosh. Nice. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I have quite a collection of hundreds of discs, most of the movie soundtracks. Yeah. Uh, but I've also got a lot of jazz. I don't sometimes listen to jazz. Um, but what's weird is that what really informed the attitude of uh, Firewall was punk. It was Amel and the Sniffers, yeah. and to a lesser degree, another Australian band called the Chats. Um, it was punk. And this book, I like to think, is punk as fuck. You know, it's got that attitude, uh, social righteous, you know, righteous fury, uh, you know, social, socially conscious anger. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's a lot of what would be driving Seven. So, and if you've ever seen like videos online of Amel and the Sniffers uh, live in concert, that's the energy that I imagine Seven's inner voice having. People, I think one reviewer once described Amy Taylor, the uh, the front woman for Amel and the Sniffers, as a human firework. <laughs> uh, it's a great description. Yeah. Human firework. A little angst never hurt, right? I mean, never it's never hurt. So, yeah, so the, the playlist, uh, you know, if I'm writing Star Trek, for instance, and I want to stay grounded in a particular era, if I'm working on an original series book like Harm's Way, uh, for that, I listen to a lot of music from the original series era. So I'd pull up, you know, original series, you know, the, the original TV soundtracks, maybe some stuff from the movie era, but mostly original series. I want to stay grounded in that time of Star Trek, that ambiance, that mood, that attitude. Uh, whereas if I'm writing something that's set in uh, Picard or, you know, uh, DS9, I'll listen to those uh, or I'll listen to the movie soundtracks. Um, the more modern stuff, I'll just pull a mix of everything. Mm. And uh, if I'm lucky enough to get a Strange New Worlds book at some point, I'll figure that out on the fly. Is that a hint towards the editor when this interview is uh, oh, they put know. out? <laughs> I know. I, I, I've sent up the flag and said, hello, I'd like a Strange New Worlds book, please. Hello. Don't think you're being obvious enough, David, now, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> they, uh, I, I think they're ignoring me. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Jody, I think you have two questions left, which, I'm not, which I'm not going to steal because I look at your list of questions. <laughs> Jody, I'm, oh, more, I I, I, I'm, I, I'm more detailed on your own notes than you are. <laughs> I've just been going with the flow. Um, I do want to ask, I guess, about... Um, you mentioned uh, Kristen Beyer earlier, and you make special note to acknowledge her in your kind of final acknowledgements of kind of mm -hmm. thanking her for her. Um, but how influential was she in creating the story? I know you spoke about how she talked about the first draft and wanted you to tone down the kind of the blood and guts of it. But well, I think what I appreciate about Kirsten's notes, I mean, she doesn't try to take over the writing process. She's not there to tell me what story to write. But what she was able to do was she asked certain questions that helped focus my, uh, my attention on different areas of the story. It, I, by implementing her notes and sort of finding, you know, all right, I see what she's saying, you know, why she has a problem with, say, element A, B, and C. Um, but why does she have an, uh, an, a problem with them? And how do I fix them while retaining, you know, everything else that I like about the story? Um, I found that 
implementing her notes enabled me to elevate the story beyond a mere action thriller. And it forced me to make a much deeper dive into the psychological and emotional reality of Seven's life. Mm. Um, certain events that could have been treated glibly or maybe uh, superficially or just badly, uh, particularly some of the earlier sequences, like uh, when she's living on Starheim and she's got this sort of, you know, strange life and, you know, she's having a, a casual encounter with someone she meets at the club and whatever. This could have gone very wrong if handled incorrectly. One of the notes that I got from Kirsten on the outline about that scene, she said, I don't object to the scene in principle. She said, but I want you to make it clear when you write this that uh, this is not a path to true happiness for her. Uh, that this is, you know, on some level, she's going to have to realize this is a, almost a form of self-harm. The, the the drinking, the, you know, anonymous connections. She's looking for something, but she's not finding it. Uh, and, she and now she's left on. empty after it as well. Then, like, with the whole, like, there's right. nobody there and the kind of the state of her apartment and all that after it. Yeah, it's probably a way I would have gone anyway, except that, you know, Kirsten made sure that it was something I was thinking about. She made sure that she and I were on the same wavelength and that I wasn't just going to, you know, come in and write some, you know, tawdry, semi-erotica scene, uh, you know, uh, completely, you know, poisoned with the male gaze, um, as opposed to, you know, skipping over the part, like, you know, again, one of the things I tried to be conscious of when writing, let's say, her scene at the beginning where she has the one night stand or, you know, her later scenes with Ellery, the moments, you know, where they get together, those are off screen because those moments belong to them. Those moments don't belong to us. I'm writing a romance. I'm not writing erotica. I'm writing a story about them falling in love, not a story about them having sex. Uh, I'm not there to impose the male gaze on their private moments. I am there to try and give us a window into their feelings, into their souls at the moment where they're falling for each other, because that's what's really important. And it was notes from Kirsten that sort of enabled me to zero in on that before I began writing the manuscript so that I was aware of it and that I wasn't going to write myself into any trap. Oh, there's, there's a crinkling noise. It's because my cat is trying to eat something plastic over here. <laughs> can we see? Can we see the cat, David? Oh, uh, he's he's run away. I've swatted ah, him. No, he's a big orange dummy. He'll come. <laughs> but, uh, I think he's chewing it because I think oh yeah, uh, it's afternoon kibble is late. Ah. Oh. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, anyway, so yeah, Kirsten just made sure that uh, I was aware thematically of what we were shooting for, which was a very sort of deep, introspective, honest look uh, into Seven's psyche, into her emotions, her motivations, her relationship with Janeway. And the other thing that she helped steer me away from originally in the early drafts, the antagonism level between Seven and Janeway was originally much higher. There was a much more palpable sense of conflict between them, of, of some sort of anger, uh, you know, because of Seven's choices and whatever. And Kirsten had spent a lot of time writing the Voyager books, uh, mm. the post mm -hmm. Voyager books. And so between that and co-creating Picard, she was very invested not only in Seven, but also in all the Voyager characters, the Voyager milieu. 
she has spent more time than maybe anybody except those who actually worked on the show thinking about in depth the relationships and the connections uh, of all those characters. And she was able to make an argument. She said that the level of conflict that I had tried to gin up between Janeway and Seven in the original outline, it felt forced. She said, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like these characters. This is not their relationship. And it's not what fans are going to remember as their relationship. And it's not what they're going to look for. Uh, you know, she said the trick, she says, I, I she said she didn't want me to take out all the conflict. She didn't want me to take out the fundamental philosophical disagreement that they have, uh, or even just the sense that maybe they don't want the same things. She said, but it's important that at no point do they forget that they actually care about each other. She says, no matter how much they disagree, mm. they must not forget this, and you must not forget this when writing scenes involving them. And that was a great note. So I went through and I revised the story, uh, their entire arc. Uh, and as a result, I feel like their arc feels more genuine. It feels like them. It has the right tone, uh, right down to, you know, the moment where, you know, Janeway has been worrying about Seven being out there on her own, alone, unguided, you know, at the mercy of, you know, forces dark and terrible. And then after the rescue uh, near the, you know, end of the second act of the book, they've got her back aboard the Dauntless uh, and she's come aboard with Ellery. And as she's, you know, asking, you know, are the two of you close? And Ellery's trying to find the right words and Seven just says, we're together. And she holds Ellery's hand. From Janeway's point of view, it's thank God she's not alone out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's, this is every parent's hope, you know, that their child will find a loving, trustworthy partner who will have their back. Uh, and that's where Janeway is. She's like, thank God she's not alone. David, so, as you said, you were doing, obviously, look, books about seven. So obviously, you'd be watching specific seven episodes and things like that. What's your favorite seven quote? Jo- Sorry, Jody. I'm totally stealing one of your questions here now, Jody. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I, I think I'd have to go with uh, fun will now commence. Yeah. That's, that's a, a classic. Thing. That's classic. classic. <laughs> Telling a bunch classic. of children, fun will now commence. <laughs> it's just you, you imagine people on the sidelines looking at going, I don't think she gets the idea. <laughs> Seven's idea of fun is very different, I think, from a lot of people. So yeah. I, mean, yeah, I think she uh, <laughs> she was not yeah, she she was wired a little differently then. Very much so. And David, is there any favorite seven moment or episode from Voyager or Picard for you? Again, Jody, I'm sorry, I'm stealing another one of your questions here now. I know, yeah, it's like, a thief. It's, you it's are play, just a darn rotten thief. It's plagiarism, like it's all plagiarism right here. You <laughs> bastard! I read uh, it. He says it. This is how we work. I get it. <laughs> uh, I think I really love the, um, the moment in. The Voyager episode Sunkatse, where she refuses to kill the Herogen who has primed her specifically to kill him. Hmm. He's ready to die. On some level, he wants to die because he feels like his true destiny as a Herogen hunter has been stolen from him. And instead of killing him, she saves him and sends him home and reunites him with his people. She gives him back his purpose in life. I, I just I sort of love the that moment where Seven, you know, could have taken the dark path, the easy path, and she chooses the hard way. She chooses 
the way of justice, the way of kindness, the way of mercy, even though she knows it's going to be more difficult, that's what she chooses and she follows through on it. And in that moment, you know, I just, I feel like at that point she began to really show who she was going to become as an ex-Borg, as, you know, as a emancipated Borg, as a, a reacclimated human, that is the core of who she is. That's her true self. Uh, she's someone who wants to fight for the oppressed, uh, to liberate the enslaved, uh, to defend the weak, to punish uh, the cruel and, and the, uh, the greedy. She, she is a justice machine waiting to happen. And I love that uh, about her. Brilliant. So, David, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, for everyone in the audience, uh, Star Trek Picard Firewall is available now in all good bookstores or online wherever you get your books. So, David, thank you very much, and we wish you all the best. We hope we'll see you on at some point with a strange new world's book. Note to <laughs> David's <happens>? editor. <laughs> Jody, thank you as well very much for coming on the show. Um, so guys, thank you very much for listening, for watching, and we will see you again next week on the Clone Star Podcast. For now, live long and prosper. No, 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 no.